All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute, but before we do that, I want to let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is a big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year, it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, App Chain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right. Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to permissionless, Hit me up. Let me know. Shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. By popular demand, you've only got the best two of the show uh, today. Michael's one and two. (laughs) Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You know, uh, the best addition by subtraction. Addition by subtraction. In the beginning, uh, when Jason and I were doing podcasts, we used to listen to each other's shows. And he was like, so I've noticed every podcast, you just start with a dad joke and then go right into the content. And I was like, yeah, I guess I do do that, actually. Um, whatever, man. If it works, it works. Um, it works, it works. We got some, we got some uh, pretty big stories this week, actually. So I think the big one that it makes sense to start with, probably just in terms of long-term impact, although there is a question on how the execution is going to play out, is the PayPal stablecoin. So... Uh, PYUSD, I guess we're calling that PayUSD, will be issued by Paxos. Uh, this is a company that's previously worked with Binance to issue the USD-backed BUSD. PayPal USD will be compatible with the Web3 environment and soon will be available on Venmo, which obviously is a gigantic, very active user base. Reserves are held in a separate NYDFS trust structure. So if anything were to happen to Paxos or PayPal, all stablecoin reserves would be untouchable by company creditors. Um, I know you. we were talking a little bit about the fee structure um, and how that's going to work with, with PayPal USD, but what do you just think about the broad implications of this? The big things are, if you, if you break it down, you've kind of got everything that's going on in Washington right now as a backdrop to all of this. Um, you now have a second major publicly traded company that's a major financial services provider in the United States coming out with their own stablecoin. I know Maxine Waters had a number of uh, choice perspectives as to her thoughts on the fact that PayPal is launching a stablecoin. Um, some of them seem to be educated and, and most of them were not. Um, the the Just the fact that you're going to have the ability to have Venmo, you know, arguably up there with Cash App in terms of usage, I think it's number two right now in terms of P2P transactions, integrate into a, uh, in, integrate in a stablecoin just produces a lot more network effects for number one, stablecoin issuance and the ability to have a stable reserve dollar um, that you can use within the Ethereum eco- uh, within the blockchain ecosystem. And number two, it solidifies Ethereum because that's another major component of this. The the Pi or Pay USD will be will be based on Ethereum as well, uh, at least initially. Um, so I think it solidifies a lot of the narratives around um, stablecoins being a, a core component. We've known that for a long time, and Ethereum being the core substrate for DeFi. Um, and yeah, I, I I saw a tweet. Um, I, I'm not sure if this is 100% accurate. I, I would imagine it is. It looked like it was a screenshot of the conversion costs of using PayUSD. It was something like thirty cents up to ten dollars, and then it maxes out uh, volume based max out at one point seven five percent to convert USD to pay USD. 
I think it's going to be, if, if that is true and that's actually what they're going with from a business model perspective, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to get adoption from that versus a USDC, which has automatic conversions. And <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, we're going to start to see these different stable coins test each other's business model um, for, you know, growth and distribution, but also how do you get value capture? Um, so it, it's good to see more shots on roll uh, altogether. What this sort of reminds me of is there was a period of time, it was, I think it was mid 2019, just in the doldrums when Libra kind of got launched out of the gate. And right now we think of stable coins as this, you know, $125 billion opportunity and it's only growing on crypto. But at that time, I think the amount of stable coins that were issued were something like two or $3 billion or something like that. And it was much more of a, wow, that's a very interesting take. And to Libra's credit or to face Meta's credit, they did see the opportunity and ended up getting shut down in Congress. I suppose you could ask the question, why would that not happen to PayPal? I think optically it's pretty different. PayPal launching a stable coin as opposed to Meta, where there's plenty of backlash and antitrust sentiment and all that kind of stuff. I think it's pretty safe to say this is bullish. <laughs> you know, I think this is a really encouraging sign of institutional adoption. It's a reminder to all of us that just because there's negative sentiment out there does not mean you know, these institutions do tend to think in very long, on very long time horizons. And uh, PayPal has kind of been in and out, but this is definitely a big, I think, confirmation and it could bring a lot of users into crypto. A hundred percent agree. It's bullish. I, and, and I think, um, you know, no matter what the business model is, once again, we're just pushing more things out. We're testing the waters, um, major institutional adoption from places like PayPal, uh, Coinbase, it, even rumors of uh X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it now, you know, the origination of X.com was a financial services platform. And, and, you know, even talking to Peter Thiel about the initial version or the initial thought, um, you know, with Max Levchin around what this could be, uh, what they wanted it to be in 1996 through 1999 was effectively what a lot of the blockchain ecosystem represents right now. Um, I think, you know, being able to intertwine um, social networks and, and social connectivity um, with financial services is a fundamentally interesting proposition. And that's what Cash App, Venmo, kind of all of the like, even Robinhood to a certain extent, that's, that's you know, the basis of their success. So having more opportunities to see new products come out, you know, fundamentally bullish. How do you see the eventual market structure for stablecoins playing out? Is there one or two or three dominant providers? Do you end up segmenting it mentally in your head between just fiat collateralized, very centralized stable coins versus some of these more decentralized alternatives like DAI or FRAX or something like that? What, what do you think the end state structure ends up looking like? Yeah, so I think you can disaggregate, um, let's call it some flavor of centralized versus decentralized. And by decentralized, I mean, uh, you know, FRAX, DAI, um, SUSD, anything that is existing um, and created by specifically a smart contract, you probably with some collateral basis. I think we've also seen that the under collateralized uh, decentralized stable coins just are not going to work. Um, we have yet to see, you know, anything in the same way of, uh, you know, Luna Terra. Um, Frax, I know, has some, you know, slight under collateralization, but it's still backed by, you know, other assets. It, it seems to be a more robust model. We'll, we'll put that to the test. On the flip side, centralized stablecoins, I think, you know, is probably the bigger question here. And obviously what, you know, PayUSD is in the camp of. Um, frankly, I think the biggest variable there is just regulations. You know, we've got the stablecoin bill that has passed committee. It'll go to a House vote uh, after the August recess. Whether it gets adopted by, you know, the Senate in this current iteration or if it happens, you know, in a couple of years down the road, um, I, we know that we've had a number of conversations with companies who are wanting to build centralized stable coins. We have companies that are going after state banking charters to try and build their own stable coins. Uh, the Fed, you know, is kind of it's unclear as to what it actually means. But the Fed came out uh, earlier this week and said, we are going to have a process for if you want to have a stable coin that is produced by a state bank or a national bank, we're going to have to give a, a non-objective opinion on that before it can launch. Um, so I think everything that exists, and, and frankly, you know, going back to it with PayUSD, I think we're probably going to see a similar perspective to what Libra had as well, which was congressional and regulatory backlash, um, or at least a pausing or a, or a pressuring to, you know, kind of call things back. Um, 
we'll see if it gets fully pulled back or if it actually you know goes through the full Libra equivalent process. But I would imagine with all of the new regulations that are pushing through, maybe there's some okay, this actually helps us push you know the perspective of stablecoin bill. And, you know, these companies are going to continue forward unless there's a black and white, you know, go forward playbook. Um, so, uh, yeah, all this is to say, I think really on the centralized side, we just frankly don't know. And it's not going to be, you know, a business model or a distribution model that that necessarily wins. It could be something that is, you know, regulatory grandfathering or a new playbook for how to you know have a bank based uh, you know, uh, stable coin. I, I would have to imagine I'm sort of been living in LST land recently and. That has firmly solidified for me in a mental model of a winner take all or winner take most market structure. And it would make sense that to me that stable coins would play out similarly. There I think it's pretty unlikely that we live in a world with many different, you know, PY, USD, USDT, USDC. I mean, there's only some right, that's just very confusing from a user experience. Um, so I, I would imagine that eventually someone ends up winning out. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see play out. USDC has a gigantic head start, uh, USDT, who knows what is going on over there. And PayPal has an enormous, very engaged user base. And if they don't get funded out by the regulators, then they'll have a huge set of advantages as well. So just be interesting to see how it all plays out. But um, Exactly. Fully agree. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase recently, they've been, uh, they've been <laughs> a lot of big stuff. So Let's we actually uh, Coinbase earnings just came out while Miles and I were recording last week's roundup, but it was overall a so revenues were down quarter over quarter, but it was still uh, ahead of expectations for analysts who were frankly expecting a bloodbath. So revenue was down 12% quarter over quarter, um, but that was still well ahead of analyst expectations. Revenues came in at 708 million. For the first time, I think the, the thing that stood out the most to me from this uh, earnings call was that their subscriptions and service, services contributed 51% of their revenue at $327 million. So they actually did more from subscription and services than they did from transactions. And that's always been the knock against Coinbase, right? They generate most of their fees from you know, pretty transaction costs from an uninformed retail base that are kind of getting scraped on that. And everyone thinks it's going to be a race to zero. And I remember Brian coming out probably a year and a half or two years ago and saying, eventually subscriptions and services are going to make up a very, very large part of our revenue. And I, I, as a supporter of Coinbase, I was kind of like, okay, you know, sure. But how are you going to do that? And to their credit, they've done it and they've done a very good job at it. So, I mean, what did you think about earnings? Um, positive and, and kind of exactly what you would expect. Um, I also, too, was surprised by that. I mean, the transactional revenue, uh, Wall Street is so interesting. It's it's funny. They want, you know, predictable revenue growth is exactly what Wall Street wants. They want you to beat, but not beat by too much because then you're outside of the bounds and maybe something's wrong with your business model. And they want you to, like, be predictable and being able to forecast your guidance, be accurate about where it's going next month. Well, the best way of having a successful business that has predictable revenue growth is something that isn't transaction-based, where... Not only is it a race to zero potentially for you know transaction fees themselves per volume, but it's also something that's highly cyclical, and we've seen that you know as well. Where you know as the crypto market ebbs and flows, what seems to be every three to four years these days, um, transaction revenue is going to ebb and flow with that. And so you know the shift is fundamentally important for the success, the long term duration success of Coinbase, and <clears throat> they knew that a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, it's great to see that. I mean, the things that are really contributing to that success right now are um, it, it twofold. One, interest income. So as they have USDC, we're talking about business models of stable coins. Interest income you know, is one of the core variables that gets put into that bucket. Um, but then you also have all of the services revenue that stems from staking. And I, I think we're going to, as you, you've been talking about, you know, LST Phi or uh, LST um, summer, whatever the whatever the common phrase is now. I mean, the new target of how much ETH is going to be staked, I think, is higher than basically anybody else predicted. I remember talking about this maybe like a couple of months ago, right as the merge was going in, and we were saying, "Oh, all of this ETH is going to become unlocked, and you're you're going to see a massive withdraw queue, and blah blah blah." Well. In fact, the withdrawal queue is, has been effectively at zero uh, for the last two months. 
um, and the and the queue to become a validator uh, has been at like 70, 60 to 70 to 80,000 waiting, which is about a month of time. And so I, I think a lot of that is going to continue to go to Coinbase. A lot of that's also going to some of the you know, LST FI. I know uh, Lido just hit 8 million um, ETH uh, in, within Lido earlier this week. Um, but I think those numbers are going to continue to crop up. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended the year, you know, at, at 30 to 40 million ETH state. So there's obviously interest income and CPI came out earlier today. It, it was slightly higher than expected. And for, for the first time since June 2022, the headline CPI number rose from from 3% to 3.2%. I think that has to do more with, you know, the previous year effect of, you know, where the numbers were last year because it's a year over year number. Um, but you know, if we assume that interest rates are going to continue to stay higher for longer, that gives a great, you know, kind of cover for uh, Coinbase USDC to continue to make money off of their interest income. You can see it here, Q2, 201 million out of the 335, you know, massive number. Um, <clears throat> I think they're going to continue to outperform there. And that gives them plenty of time to build up blockchain rewards, custodial fee revenue, other subscriptions. And earlier this week, and I know we're going to talk about it. Um, base launched yesterday and, and yesterday, I think they did $216,000 worth of revenue or somebody calculated that, which is about a $78 million run rate of revenue. And that's off of the first day. And obviously, you know, everybody was incentivized with the first day of mint, but, you know, base is really getting a lot of attention right now. Um, and I think not many people fully understand the, the ramifications of having a blockchain, you know, that you own and, and, you know, derive revenues from and people actually want to use. And having that encaptured uh, within a within a publicly traded equity, I think is going to be a really powerful example to Wall Street as to what you can do. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on all of that, Mike. So just to break down some of that, the what we're looking at here for folks who are following along is we're looking at Coinbase's revenue, which is broken up into transaction revenue. So that's between their consumer and institutional segments. And then we're looking at their subscription and services buckets, which is blockchain rewards, which is I think primarily staking. Then there's custodial fee revenue, interest income, and other subscriptions and services. So I'd guess that's sort of a bucket of Coinbase One and, and other. The interest income, which has been a rocket ship, has gone down uh, a little bit. It's about a 20% decline. I'd guess that's just because USDC's market cap has continued to decline, I think, since around um, like April or May of this year. Uh, but staking, yeah. to your point, blockchain rewards has, has trended up. And... Yeah, it was interesting to see. I was very curious to see how the analysts were going to discuss base and if they were going to ask any questions about it. And they have, and they did. They asked a, a de decent couple of questions about it. And uh, I think Brian confirmed that the sequencer was going to be the way that they were going to monetize, which is very interesting to hear because there's a lot of talk about decentralizing sequencers and talked about it on this podcast a couple of times, but I feel like it's a growing uh, groundswell that maybe we don't actually need to do that. And that has big implications for value accrual on these layer twos. The interesting thing about Coinbase, I saw someone tweet this out, but one of the interesting opportunities that Coinbase has is they have the opportunity to actually do identity um, on their on base. And we, t we covered WorldCoin a couple of episodes ago. And while I think there are some some qualms about WorldCoin, some of which are probably pretty well-deserved. Figuring out that proof of personhood idea has a lot of benefits. Mostly it's, it's civil resistance and you can do, you can do more accurately uh, airdrops and stuff like that. So the ability for Coinbase to do that for customers on their layer two on base is the way I would draw it. They kind of created this new category of you used to have just CFI over here and totally unregulated, lawless, Wild West DeFi over here, they have this really unique opportunity to kind of find maybe this middle ground where, you know, it still has the the spirit of, of crypto, but they can add in a little bit, like do things like proof of personhood uh, for people from the exchange, for instance. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, that that to me and and frankly us at framework has always been the thesis on base. It's not going to be the place where everybody you know moves. I, I think there still will be a lot of interest just based off of liquidity and interest right now. You know, there's still potential for it to become a hub of liquidity. 
But I think to your point exactly, I mean, at Framework, we call it public permission DeFi, where it is still public, it exists on a public blockchain, but, and you can verify, you know, authenticity, you can verify scarcity, whatever, you know, the, the superpowers of blockchain still exist. But, um, and, and I saw that tweet as well. I, imagine having Venmo, but you can see where all the money is and you can see everything, you know, on chain. Um, and that would require KYC. And imagine you get, uh, you, you attach your base wallet uh, or you attach your Coinbase wallet to your base wallet and you have a permanent KYC uh, um, NFT that goes into your wallet that you can then use to verify KYC and the different types of applications now that you can assume that the 40 million Coinbase customers now all have a, a verified wallet address is huge. I mean, that that opens up the aperture lens for new types of financial products, specifically for U.S. persons, because KYC is a requirement for, for that. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it's a, just a new ecosystem for application development. Um, I think that's, you know, one layer of it. I think the other layer too is, uh, is also um, just the fact that there's a ton of interest right now. I mean, the whole bald situation and you've got all this excitement and people are minting, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it's sort of like the animal spirits when this, when this stuff starts to happen, and the hot ball of money starts to roll around, like that's when you can start to assess the tea leaves and see, okay, like, you know, the green shoots exist. Like we can see where the market is trending and trajectory is up. Um, but you have to start to see like the roll bit rolling into the Unibot, rolling into the base ecosystem. Like it just starts to compile. Um, and so I, I also just love to see that. Me too, man. I'm so with you. Okay. Let me ask you this question. Do you think we had a debate about this on last week's roundup? Do you think that bald going live on base was a good thing or a bad thing for their rollout? Ultimately a, a very positive thing. Me too. Um, came down. And I, everyone was like, oh, well, is it going to erode the trust with consumers? It's like, no, it brings people in. Like people yeah. will hear about it because of it. Um, and, you know, like, oh, well, Wall Street's going to like get really scared and not trust the, the sanctity of this ecosystem. It's like, you think Wall Street actually understands anything about these ecosystems? Like, absolutely not. Um, so no, I, I'm, uh, that was a hundred percent positive. I don't think it was planned, but you know, sometimes you have to get lucky. You know, I did a little wish upon a star none of the analysts asked Brian about bald, which really would have been the cherry on top of that, <laughs> of that earnings call, but what are you going to do? So good. But I agreed with you. I think the miles and I had this actually came out on different sides of this on last week's roundup, but I think it was, you know, what would have sort of crushed my soul a little bit is for Coinbase to say, Hey, we're not going to have that kind of stuff on our chain. And I think this was right. actually an opportunity for them to let their hair down a little bit. And I don't know, I think it's I think it ends is going to end up being a long term, positive thing, because everyone has this aspiration of well, these aren't the customers that we'd like to have we'd like wouldn't wouldn't it just be great if we had these utilitarian apps that people want you have to meet the market where it's at. I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd like it too. No. If we had <laughs> less moon coins and more apps that were getting utility, but meet the market where it's at today and build towards something longer term. I don't know. Here, here's a strange analogy, but I've been thinking a lot about it because of, you know, everything that's been going on this week. Um, think of it as the like tight, really buttoned up version of what is sports commentary and the professionalism versus Dave Portnoy and Barstool. Just the difference of, you know, the sanctity and, and professionalism versus talking to where the market actually is. Mm. and what those types of outcomes can actually be. It's sort of like the ESPN versus Barstool perspective completely. And I think Coinbase, because of you know who they represented in the industry and you know being publicly traded, what they could and couldn't do, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they haven't had an opportunity to participate in a lot of what's been going on in the community um, and the culture around crypto. And I, I think Base is actually a great opportunity for them to participate and and help proliferate a lot of that culture um, without necessarily being directly involved. You know, they're, they're a technology platform now that anyone can build on top of. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hundred percent with you. You gotta, you gotta be able to go where the market is. And, and I think they've been stuck uh, with hands tied behind their back historically. So I'm excited to see what they can do now. Yeah, me as well. Not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I don't know if you saw that Penn did some big deal with, ESPN and they actually cut oh, yeah. Barstool loose and I think Prez just got it back for for 
zero dollars, uh, but the, the, you know, it's fifty percent of the proceeds of a future sale. But nah, wow. well, yeah. So that's what I was that's what I was referring to. It's just like the the person who made the best deal of the year so far is Dave Portnoy. Um, sold it for five hundred million dollars and bought it back, basically fully intact for one dollar. Um, me and and the, that that is the whole thing of what I was referencing with Barstool versus ESPN. ESPN told Penn allegedly, um, you, we will do this billion and a half dollar deal with you, a 10 year license agreement to create ESPN bet, uh, which is the new, you know, betting platform that they wanted to have. Barstool has been this anchor on Penn for the last two, three years because they haven't been able to get the gambling licenses that they need or the gaming, you know, uh, um, licenses. And they haven't been able to, you know, move past the 16 states that they have, whereas ESPN is sort of like the, the polished, you know, sports perspective in the industry. And they basically said, hey, if you want to do this deal, you got to get rid of Barstool. And they said, all right, Dave, we need to get rid of Barstool. And he said, great, I'll take it all. And buys it back for a dollar. He also has to give up 50% of any proceeds of what he eventually yeah. sells it for. But his, his, uh, what he said live was, I'm just never going to sell it. So let's talk a little bit about the what one thing I'd be curious. I've been thinking about a lot, and we talked about a little bit on last week's roll up is just the value accrual that's going to end up happening in the roll up space. So it's starting to get interesting, I think. So for me, value accrual on Ethereum is very elegant um, and very easy to understand. Uh, from my perspective, it's really EIP one five five nine, and there's a burn mechanism and uh, price is a function of supply and demand. And the more demand that Ethereum gets, the less supply that there is, you know, the less supply that there is. And um, there's a pretty clear relationship there. I think on layer two level, it's a little bit more up for debate. And I, for one, have really liked the architecture that a lot of these rollups have taken on. I think the OP stack was the first one to really lean into an app-specific architecture. And since then, you've had Others, Arbitrum Orbit, which is a little bit different because you have to settle through Arbitrum. Then you also have the ZK stack, et cetera. And it seems like a pretty elegant design decision. The question is, where is the value capture going to take place? And I think this is playing out in a pretty interesting way, frankly, even between something like base, because these revenues that base are going to generate, they're not going to optimism. So, And then the other thing that's happening, I think, over in optimism land is conduit which is a essentially a RAS type solution that leverages optimism. And it's looking like there might be a risk from optimism's perspective that this is where the value capture is actually going to take place. I think probably the right analogy here is the open source Linux versus the you know $50 billion company Red Hat, which monetized that really effectively. So there are going to be really asymmetric payouts depending on where you are in the stack and where the value capture ultimately ends up being. And I think you're starting to see Optimism realize this a little bit. They recently released something, the law of chains, which is, hey, you can really build whatever stack you want, but if you want to be in super chain, you have to adhere to these standards. Then I think what they're creating there is a little bit of lock-in. And for, let's say, you know, if you want to integrate with, um, like, it's more valuable, like, let's say you want to have an integration with a company like Fireblocks or something like that. Well, the specifications are going to be for anyone in, the super chain. And if you're not in the super chain, then maybe you can do whatever you want, but you're not going to have this easy, this easy set of built-in integration. So what do you, what do you think about this? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on how value capture is going to look on the roll-up layer? Yeah, really good question. And actually here, here's a question back to you. Do you know exactly what the business model of Cantina or not Cantina, um, uh, center, what conduit is, conduit. Um, because I, I would I, I would imagine it's probably some and the services that they're providing. We're we're not investors. I, I don't know very much about them other than what's on their website. Um, but it seems like they help you spin up your own optimism based chain. Um, and actually, one of the people on our team, they were Rajiv, um, was saying he tried to do it just to see what it was like, and he was like, "Yeah, it was up and running within three minutes." Obviously, nothing was happening on it, but you can truly spin these things up very, very quickly. Um, <clears throat> I, I would imagine, you know, there, there is going to be a fundamental question around, you know, what is, where does value accrue to the specific ecosystems, but then also the specific chains. Base, I think, is very simple. It's you have the shared sequencer, and that is owned by Coinbase 
incorporated and you know you pay fees to run on base and those fees go back to coinbase the interesting part would be okay cantina is going to create a diaspora of other op based chains uh, god not cantina conduit it's going to create this you know explosion of new chains are they each going to have their own sequencer are they going to rely on a sequencer network you know where does the value accrue in those ecosystems as well does that go back to you know, the Linux equivalent optimism, uh, or is it something that gets accrued to a Red Hat because they're able to provide services? And, you know, um, we were, we were talking about this internally at Framework and, you know, sort of like what, what's the future potential of uh, Conduit and, you know, how are they going to work going forward? Easy to spin up, you pay a SaaS fee probably. And, and what do they do afterwards? Well, maybe they help you with DevOps or maybe, but like Red Hat's business model isn't that, you know, you have, you know, Linux and it's this proprietary software that you can now pay them for. It's that they provide you services and um, you know DevOps and all the things that it takes to run at scale. Um, and that's that's how they make their money. And you know it's a I think a twenty five thirty billion dollar purchase. So you know massive business on top of Linux. There's going to be a huge question as to like where does value accrue in the same way. I do think that there is an element here that's differentiated in that you do have a sequencer that's extracting value and it costs. A certain amount to pay to use it whereas linux is just like it's free open source software um but it will be a question as to you know does eventually you know the optimism stack decentralize their sequencer does it go to a different model where you can tap into a shared sequencer network and that's you know the the way that you pay for things but then they also share revenue or something along those lines um the other interesting variable here and so all of that's to say like i i don't know but we're going to start to see a bunch of different models emerge um, of, you know, maybe run your own service, tap into an existing one and pay, you know, the existing one or, or pay Coinbase to use, you know, build on theirs. Um, the benefit, though, is I think you can be across all of these different ecosystems simultaneously. Um, and so maybe it's sort of a let the users decide where they want to be type question. Um, you know, I know the uh, number of the protocols in the synthetics ecosystem are talking about, you know, what if we launched on base, they're already on mainnet, they're on optimism. And now the question is, well, what if we ported our stuff over, over to base just so that we have coverage of all the different ecosystems? It's really easy if you're building on optimism technology to be able to have that cross compatibility. Um, so it might ultimately end up being, you have all the different versions of all these different ecosystems with different value capture. And ultimately, the users will decide where they want to aggregate and, and where most of the revenue is generated. It's tough. I think I think the way that at least I mentally walk through this is from the perspective of a potential new app chain. And let's say that I'm trying to spin this up. And ultimately, what I could do is figure out all of these modular parts myself. And as much as we say this is open source technology and it's super easy, it's probably a lift if you're not technical or... There could be some layer of abstraction that sits in between you and ultimately the code that Optimism has open sourced. And you could pay a small fee, but it could save you an enormous amount of time. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's a really easy decision to probably make. And right now, if I had to guess at where the value lock-in happens, I feel like it's at the sequencer. That might be just being way too simplistic, but that's kind of the you know right and left part of the bell curve that just, that's what we all think, right? It's the sequencer. So I, it's probably a pretty good business model that they've got there. Um, totally. Yeah. The, the other, the other angle here, which I think is interesting. Yes. Okay. You've got, you know, a crypto native app developer, uh, you know, who wants to build potentially their own app application on top of their own chain. Um, I think the other variable here is what about all the people who are app developers who don't know a thing about blockchains? Where are they going to start? Where is Coca-Cola going to come in and say, oh, we want to have our own L2 as well. Right. And that'll have the Coca-Cola, you know, NFTs on it. Well, they're, they're probably going to go to Conduit and spin things up and say, okay, boom, we've got ourselves an optimism stack. And maybe they're going to have cross compatibility with Coinbase to be able to say, hey, Coinbase users, if you connect your wallets, you know, whatever it may be, maybe it's a terrible example thinking out loud, but the the idea is, you know, I, I think new entrants into the space, the easier it is, they're probably going to go with that. And it's going to be the least costly. But, you know, even existing applications, if you wanted to move over or, or new developers who understand the space, um, who want to build new apps, you know, there's still going to be a lot of interest in, in going in that direction, too. Yeah.
I agree. It also, it's interesting to listen to the Aiden from Stride, uh, the one of the co-founders of Stride reminded me of this, but developers, they're not all developers are the same. And usually infrastructure developers are very different from app developers. In Cosmos land, those lines are blurred a little bit more, but in Ethereum, there's kind of this group of infra guys and gals, and then there are the app developers and they, they're very different in terms of their skill set and mindset. And I think what uh, products like Conduit will ultimately do is help abstract some of that distinction away so that if you only care about building an app, you can just come in and do that. And it could be Coca-Cola, but it just could be crypto natives who aren't infrastructure developers, but they're, you know, laser focused on the app layer, which eventually we need. We eventually want more of that, I think. I mean, there's so many examples of this, of like Heroku and Docker and uh, like all the different, uh, just put your infrastructure in a box, get spun up. Sure, it's going to be able to work. It's going to work for like 10,000 concurrent users, not 10 million, but you could test your app, you could build it, you can you know do all the different things you needed to without really having to worry about it. And I think easing the access points of infrastructure um, ultimately will make the applications better. And I know we were talking about this um, you know, a, a podcast or two of like infrastructure phase versus application phase. And when are we finally yeah. going to start seeing the applications? It felt like ECC was a lot of infrastructure. Well, you know, it, it is because we still need to solve a lot in infrastructure. But one of the big ways that we can cross over into the application phase is we get a bunch of application developers to not have to worry about infrastructure. And, and I think, you know, this is a good example of that. I agree. One thing, the the last question that I'll ask you here, it's it's interesting to hear you say that maybe the Docker example being good of, you know, maybe there's some sort of sequence here where you first try to get a little bit of product market fit and you would use something like a conduit. Maybe even before that, you're an app on main chain or something like that. You're just trying to just get your product out there in an MVP type state and you don't care that much about the granularity of your ecosystem, but it's just really important that you get it out there in the cheapest, most cost efficient way. Then maybe step two is to build on a platform like the OP stack that leverages conduit. And that's infra in a box. And maybe that gets you to, I don't know, uh, 100,000, 200, five, 5 million users maybe. But then event the question is, what do you do after that? Because once you have product market fit, this I think there's a technical part of this discussion, which is, okay, the conduit still makes sense for me at that level of scale. But there's also a bundling benefit. I think one way to understand what's going on with law of chains and all of these different roll-ups is there's always going to be a little bit of attention. I think the game they're trying to play is we want the next big app that gets product market fit to be built on our chain. And if we put it all in the super chain, then everyone will derive the benefit of that. Yeah, everyone thinks like that, except for the app that gets product market fit. And it's like, hey, you guys are riding my coattails. And that is a, it's a challenging, it's, that's a challenging, that's challenging. So what I, what I've always envisioned happening after that is Cosmos, because that's the the next sort of logical step where you can have, you can own everything. You can own everything full stack. And it doesn't make sense for so many products now because so few products have product market fit, but eventually you could see a lot of springboarding layer twos moving over to the, the Cosmos system. What do you think about that? I've always thought that you're going to have the exact, some similar progression of uh, you start off as a smart contract on, you know, a, a really cost-effective chain. It's not going to be built for scale. It's going to be built for, for assessing product market fit. Then maybe you move into a more cost-effective environment where you need the scale, where the liquidity exists. Um, you start to harden your product, your service. You test the scale. You test the capabilities of it. And then it moves into more of a multi-chain experience. And I think that's where the growth phase comes in. It's sort of like, okay, we, we built everything within OP and you know, we started off as a smart contract. Now we have our own token, we're our own L2, but then we need to move to like base and ETH L1 and we need Avalanche and like everything, Solana, who knows? Like we need to build instances everywhere to be able to attract all the potential users. <clears throat> and then, yeah, I think there is a question as to, and, and we haven't really even seen that many examples of that right now. Like you've got Aave across a bunch of different, you know, blockchains and you've got uh, Uniswap. We'll see exactly how Uniswap X works. And maybe that's the router that enables the unified product experience across chain. I think it will be. Um, and you're starting to see cross-chain compatibility. DYDX will be the first real kind of test for that fourth phase, which is own your own L1. Um, and I, I think that there are obviously a ton of benefits for, for having that, 
Um, there are also a lot of additional costs and a lot of new core competencies that you have to build within the team to be able to do that well. And I, this is like an oversimplification and, and personal example, but when, when I was at Dropbox, one of the big questions and Dropbox historically was basically like cloud storage built on top of AWS and um, with a nice syncing function in, in your uh, utility bar. Um, but all the, all the storage data existed in S3. Um, and you know we were the largest AWS customer by a long shot. Um, there was this huge effort to move all of the data off AWS and build your own data centers and own the own own your own data yourself. And I, I I think one of the more interesting things that happened with that was you know there was a strategic value to owning your own data and being able to like when the server goes down call up a Dropbox employee versus an Amazon employee. But <clears throat> it is. Also, it, it was found to be NPV negative for that transaction to move everything off of AWS just because of the economies of scale that AWS had versus running your own infrastructure. Obviously, not the same example, but there is a question of what is the what is the scale and security guarantees that you get with an ETH L1, um, and you know one interesting variable here. Um, I've already mentioned his name, but Rajiv within framework did some analysis on this of just like, where's 4844, EIP 4844, where is that kind of trending? Um, and what are some of the updates? And the basic update is it's looking like it will be roughly 10 times cheaper for a, 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 an optimistic chain to put call data on L1, at least Ethereum. Um, and that does change the economics like pretty fundamentally. In, in favor of maybe it is actually just better to put the security guarantees into Ethereum, the cost of, of call data is gonna go down an order of magnitude. And you're gonna be able to have like a pretty inexpensive um, to run uh, potential roll up that you can have for yourself, maybe at that third phase of growth where you're running your own L2. Um, you know, hat tip to him for all the analysis that he did and, and you know, kind of the understanding there. But it does make it quite, it, it does make the question of like, where do you want the value to accrue? Is it going to be something that exists in the sequencer layer and you kind of have differentiation on the sequencer we've been talking about? Or do you eventually get to a state where you're like, okay, I just have to have my own chain and I have to run my own security model myself. Um, I think it's probably more of the former, uh, especially if prices continue to go down for, for L2s. Um, and then you differentiate on, on business model of the sequencer. So the point about call data being more inexpensive is I think a very good one. It's someone posted a blog post a while ago, transaction throughput is overrated. And the point they were trying to make is, you know, people cite TPS quite a bit in terms of cost efficiency, but really one of the big bottlenecks is data availability and the cost of posting data. So computation and throughput is obviously much cheaper, much faster on the layer twos, but there's still this bottleneck of Ethereum. Now, you could, there are a couple other solutions to this, right? There's going to, call data is going to be cheaper with 4844, I think is the name of the upgrade, but there's yeah. also going to be some other data availability solutions. So EigenDA is one right. where uh, validators that opt into running an alternative data availability solution will be able to process, that'll be another solution for posting call data. Celestia is another routing sort of solution. There was an interesting post from Dankrad on Twitter today. So one of the, I actually, posted something about this a couple weeks ago, coming back from modular summit, but kind of as an interesting thought experiment, if your chain, let's say you use the SVM for execution, you use uh, Celestia for data availability, but then you settle to Ethereum. What kind of chain are you? And it's exactly, you know, it's an, I, it's kind of interesting and the, it's sort of a malformed question to be honest, but all of the responses that I got were it's the settlement layer. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that actually um it's a it's a worthwhile question i think i think there's actually two different perspectives yeah and it's a question of um to whom are you asking the question of what blockchain are you <laughs> is it the developers yeah because that's the settlement chain yeah. is it the users because that's the execution engine <laughs> that's a really good point yeah point point being all this is just going to be exciting to watch how it plays out. And I think everyone's yep. going to have their assumptions tested quite a bit in, in the coming years, but that'll be fun. Uh, speaking of assumptions yeah. getting tested, we should move on to 
XRP, it looks like the SEC is feeling <laughs> that decision. Dun, dun, dun. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, so I, this is me putting on my fake legal hat, uh, my fake lawyer hat. But um, I, uh, so it's an interlocutory appeal. Yeah. Uh, and what that means is, um, and I, I read the whole thing yesterday. There's three variables that you know constitute whether or not you know there should be an interlocutory appeal. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to miss parts, um, so forgive me. But it's effectively like, does this cause confusion in the marketplace? Um, and is there sort of like a, an impending reason, you know, why we need to do this sooner rather than later? The typical appeal process would wait for the full conclusion of the suit to play through. And that would also include the specific complaints against uh, the former and existing CEOs, mm. which is probably a year away. And so you can either file an interlocutory appeal on the existing summary judgments right now um, and see how that plays out. Or you can wait for the entire thing to be finalized and then appeal uh, either the whole thing or components of uh, the, the, the case. And so they, they chose the, la the former in that they wanted to do the interlocutory appeal, specifically referencing two facts. Number one, um, that the judge in the Terra case said, um, effectively dismissed the motion for dismissal um, by saying that, you know, the, the, the precedent that's set in the Ripple case does not apply here. And the, that one is sort of a weak argument. Um, but it's, you know, you, you basically saying like, we can't use the precedent set in the Ripple case to therefore dismiss this case. These are two separate cases. Um, the bigger one I thought was the confusion uh, that lies now in the Coinbase suit, which uh, they also referenced saying Coinbase has now referenced, has put through a motion to dismiss our case. And they referenced Ripple as one of the reasonings for why they should dismiss um, the Coinbase suit. So obviously, you know, I, I, I think I obviously don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, I don't know where sort of, you know, the, the winds are blowing in terms of these perspectives. Um, it seems like the timeline here is in the next like weeks, not months in terms of figuring out whether or not this will happen. I know that what does happen is the judge in the Ripple case, as well as the second circuit itself will have to approve this interlocutory appeal, which will effectively pause all of the continuing stuff going on in the Ripple case and until they can uh, reassess the the points that were summary judgmented um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it's interesting. I think um, a lot of people who know more than I do were expecting something like this to happen. So it's not as a huge surprise. Um, and this was actually the week that everybody was saying, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen this week. Um, so it'll, it'll just be interesting to see how it plays out. I think um, you know, we can't hope for these different opinions and different judges to, to come and create the new standard. That's not how these rulings work. Um, we have to have new rules and regulations. So I think this just furthers the, the need for there to be, you know, congressional action. Um, and, and that stuff that's happening concurrently. Um, <clears throat> and we'll see where that lands in a couple of months once recess is over. But yeah, it's um, unexpected or not not anything that's unexpected. Um, and uh, I, I would say it's probably 50-50 as to where it ends up now. I think the the generally expected or the consensus would be that if this were to get reversed, then the only two crypto assets that would be pretty safe from being deemed securities would be Bitcoin and ETH. I think it's up in the air for almost everything else. And then I think you need to probably reapply the discount rate that you were applying on other altcoins, frankly. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely something very meaningful. I have no knowledge, really no special knowledge better than anyone else listening to this show on how these things play out in court. So I guess we'll just knock on some wood and cross our fingers here because that would kind of suck if it got reversed. I mean, the, the other thing here too is, okay, so let's say this does get appealed and it does go through and it goes through in favor of the SEC. Well, the next step would be to reappeal, and I'm sure Ripple would do this, reappeal to the Supreme Court. And yeah. that's, you know, obviously a choice that the SEC has decided to go forward with. But one of the perspectives that I heard is, well, you know, if you appeal it, you run the risk of having it go your way the next time. But the next and final step after that is is the final, uh, final boss, the Supreme Court. Um, 
And we know how they feel about overreaching uh, administrative uh, bodies just based off of some of the rulings that they've had in the last six months. Uh, and that court's probably not going to change in the next three to five years when, when that would get adjudicated. So it is a risk for the SEC, you know, as they progress this up and up the hill. You guys had a, an investment in Spearbit, uh, now I think being formally named Cantina, or that's the name of the marketplace that they're creating. But talk to us a little bit about that investment, because I feel like auditing is just so critically important these days for DeFi protocols that we're coming off, you know, two weeks off the back of the curve exploit. And it just feels more than ever that we need to solve this issue. So yeah, what was behind the investment or whatever you can say? Yeah, so 100% agree on the need to solve this. It's probably one of the most glaring issues that that has existed since day one that hasn't been solved. And it's not something that you can really solve with a clean, easy fix. Cybersecurity in general is sort of a whack-a-mole problem. Um, and and you know everybody continues to get more sophisticated over time on both sides. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the backstory is Spirit is, you know, they're one of the top brands in auditing um, over the last few years and have sort of the traditional business model of, you know, engagements where you know, uh, um, they dive in and do a project, do an audit. There are some cycles on it, but they're really kind of meaty sized projects where, you know, these can be $100,000, $200,000 per engagement with, you know, tens to hundreds of hours of security researchers time going into these specific audits. And that, you know, is, is big, they're clunky, they're kind of hard to, um, you know, schedule, you know, it, it, back in the bull cycle, you'd hear of people like pre-scheduling nine months out for, you know, their audit with one of these firms because they wanted to reserve that time so that they wouldn't have to wait another six months once they finished the work to be able to get the audit in. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a finite resource and um, these things take time. And so from that, and, and really kind of the thesis is Cantina will become more of a marketplace for security where you can have bite-sized engagements and continued um, work with consistent security researchers who will you know, basically become you know, extensions of your team uh, that can help with Hey, we can do a full engagement. You know, we can do the full audit, um, but maybe you need to check an upgrade, or maybe you need to spend three weeks this week, and it'll be on more of a bite-sized per hour type engagement. Um, so, really, kind of turning the security model and the existing um, business model of a lot of these firms on its head. I mean, the other thing too is when you have an engagement, a, a vast minority of that total engagement value is actually going to the security researchers, and so they miss out on a whole ton of the economics. Um, that they're generating. And we feel like that's unfair. And we want to make sure that it is uh, that we're lifting up security researchers um, and being able to create brands for themselves, whether they're full-time or part-time workers in this industry, being able to have reputation, um, I think will go a long way to creating long-standing relationships. And you know, you'll better understand who the best people are and they're going to be able to rise the ranks and it'll be, it'll be kind of a fun game to see how it plays out. Um, so yeah, excited to see this new model go forward and, and excited to invest in Spiritbit. How, how are you thinking about managing in terms of the, one of the um, things that I always think about with marketplaces like this, where you're connecting two different groups of people who will mostly be working in an offline sort of environment. How do you ensure that people don't kind of come off the platform and end up, you know, trying to circumvent Cantina and, not pay the fee. Yeah. I mean, I think with any business, any marketplace, right. It, it comes down to a few things. It's sort of like ease of use. So right. how easy is it for the marketplace? If you're, if the marketplace is a point of friction, then you're, your DOA. Um, if it's a facilitator of these types of interactions, then it, it actually is a lubricant. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, things like payment, uh, facilitation and, um, I think all of that makes it really easy, but the big one here is also reputation. And so if you have, you know, really high reputation on platform, um, you're able to garner more work or higher, higher, uh, per hour work, um, that becomes your business. Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of that, you could think about it like in an Airbnb model of people wanting to be on the Airbnb platform because that's their inflow of new opportunities and people will go to the branded place to find those opportunities when they're, you know, 
so when they're demanding the services and, and supply will exist there. And so if you can build, you know, successful controls around uh, easing friction and making reputation um, and revenue opportunities on both sides, I, I think, you know, that's how you build a, a really liquid market for this. Because um, really, that's what it is. It's a, it's a marketplace for security. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff that's in the hopper in the works right now. But, you know, those are kind of the basic principles. It's been a week. Um, hopefully we, we come back with uh, next week with more good news. Honestly, another PayPal yeah. uh, type <laughs> company launching a, a stable. But, you know, if this one thing that I have had a, a takeaway just being in Blockworks for the years, the news is just so uncorrelated to price. Some of the things that have happened in the couple, in the last couple months, news-wise, if this had been a bull market, you know there would have been tweets with ten thousand likes, and people would be saying the market's going up because of this. News and the market do not have the correlated relationship that people think. I really believe it. So I, I was actually thinking about this this week, thinking about PayPal launching a stablecoin on Ethereum. Okay, if you take it all the way back and you bring it back to like two thousand seventeen. Ethereum would have popped hundred percent on that day. Right? right. Yeah. And you know, it had, it has a lot to do with like liquidity and, you know, interest, but that's like a, Oh my gosh, you know, enterprise Ethereum Alliance is actually doing something and it's legit. It's not just promises of these BD relationships, which even move Ethereum 40 or 50% when they announced that day, um, <clears throat> you know, and you, you get more mature and you're like, okay, in 2020, if we had a couple of stable coins and we had a couple of, you know, DeFi protocols that were working, but then you have PayPal stepping in and, you know, the big brand and they're going to bring like the institutions are coming became real because the institutions literally got here, how big that would have been. Um, like that would have been a huge day as well, you know? And, and I think, you know, Ethereum was flat when PayPal launched to, you know, this year, it's like, I think there is an element of the industry matures to where, Proof is yeah. in the pudding. Just because there's an announcement doesn't mean anything. Let's like show me in the data after it's working. I think there's also some questions as to like, will they be able to get this, or or is this going to be another Libra? You know, announce the protocol, the product, and like, you know, have Congress you know show up on your front door. Um, and and then also uh, like we already have so many working, um, you know, centralized and decentralized protocols, uh, stablecoin protocols. Um, and like, is the market saturated there with USDC? And, you know, the other, the other one that we didn't really talk about on the decentralized side is like DAI has had a heck of a week, you know, with the DSR changes and, um, you know, it, it's jumped up like I think six or $700 million, um, this week. And like, there's, there's some really interesting stuff going on in the stablecoin market. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, do we need another one right now? But, um, Ultimately, this will be positive. I think the data will actually come through and number of people who use PayPal religiously and I'm sure would love to entertain using a pay USD is actually pretty high. Um, so I, I'm very hopeful for this one. Um, I don't think it's just to be a flash in the pan. Yeah, me too. I think so. I flip flopped a little bit. We covered Maker's Endgame a little while ago. Where I was not super positive on it. I recently come around a little bit on it and think I maybe I still don't feel like I fully understand it, but I have I've, I've started to change my mind on it a little bit. But here's what I generally think about stable coins is that stable the market for a stable coin, a successful stable coin at scale is gigantic. I kind and it's very difficult to do. History would prove that out. So if you're gonna be offering a stable coin, I would like to see that be the only thing that you do is generally how I think about this stuff because I think it's just too much. I think if you're viewing your stablecoin as an alternate revenue stream or something that fits into a broader pie, it's just too risky and it's already going to be hyper competitive and intense. And I I kind of think, I already think it's going to be a winner take most market. So that's sort of my thought on stablecoins is that if you're going to issue a stablecoin, it should just be the only thing you do. Totally fair. And, you know, Endgame is going to be really fun to watch is kind of my perspective. Um, and I'm, and I'm glad we're taking shots, you know, like trying different things. And, um, so yeah, excited, excited, excited to see all that, but, um, I agree. I, uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, building your own currency is, is a difficult enough economic equation. Circle had 779 million in revenue for first half of year. 
already surpassing the 772 million for all of 2022. The private firm generated 219 million in adjusted earnings before interest tax, so EBITDA, uh, outpacing the 150 million for all of last year. They have over a billion in cash on the balance sheet. So it's been a tough couple of months from the market perspective, uh, like a market cap perspective of USDC, but they've got a money printing machine on their hands. Definitely great for them. We need more Jeremy Allaire's and, and more circles. Um, but it more actually balls. makes sense because it, it, it is, uh, I mean, think about it. June, July last year was when interest rates started rising. Yeah. And that's half the year. And we've just passed the first half of the year. And it's almost the exact same number. So like, you, yeah, you turn you turn on interest rates for half of last year and the first half of this year, the number is probably going to be the same. I would guess they'll finish the year at twice what they did last year. <laughs> That's so, Michael, do you think when Jay Powell started hiking interest rates, Jeremy was just like, let's go, boys. Cartwheels. <laughs> right. He's he doing cartwheels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interest rate. It's an interest rate business model. So it is, you know, it is. Um, I feel like it I agree, in, though. I was just I feel yeah. like it prints in both directions, because in a bull market, there's just more capital coming into the space overall. It's probably good for your business. But in a bear market, there's probably a pretty high correlation between bear markets and when interest rates are going up. And then at the same time, stablecoin dominance probably goes up during a bear market, I would guess. A lot of people right. used to move entirely into Bitcoin, but now they probably go into stables. So <laughs> what a business. Exactly. What a business that is. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I also don't think we're getting back to ZERP anytime soon. So I think they're going to be around for a while. No, I don't think so either. That, I mean, the yeah, you, you referenced CPI. That report came out at 8.30 this morning. They... It was, I think, still below expectations. It was 3.2 headline versus 3.3 expected, but it was, Three, basically yeah. In line with, yeah, it was basically in line with what folks thought. And, you know, it's not, Jay Powell did say during the last FOMC that he doesn't expect 2% inflation to come back until 2025. So yeah. that's probably an important date to lock down, but. Um, Higher for longer. Higher for longer, baby. Higher for longer. Macro. We got our macro pod uh, commentary in there. So <laughs> I think we can end it on that, Michael. Always. And uh, see you here next week. Bye.